unbanked and underserved. Nearly 63 million Americans don't have a bank account. That's hurting low-income communities especially hard. They rely on payday lenders, which have a reputation of preying on the vulnerable. It's especially evident on the south side of Chicago. We're there. The American Context Podcast starts right now. And welcome once again to the American Context Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hirschfeld. Welcome to the first episode of our third season. Today, we're discussing what it means to be underbanked. The American Context Substack newsletter is ramping up with a new series of contributors. Our first is Diane Estabrook. You may know her from PBS's nightly business report, maybe even uh, over at Al Jazeera. But this week, she wrote a piece about underbanking right here for the American Context newsletter. And she's here to put this story in a little bit more context. So, wow, this was a really kind of insightful piece. You're on the ground right now. What are you seeing? Well, I think particularly in Chicago, and I don't know if you have probably tuned in to see what's going on over the week. There was a lot of looting in the city and there's a lot of dismay over the Black Lives Matter, over COVID, and a lot of these people feel like they've been left out, they've been disenfranchised. And I think this whole issue of being an unbanked sort of speaks to that. Because when you're not banked, there's sort of a feeling of being not legitimate. Being in the banking system or being in the US financial system lends credibility and lends a sense of being a real person. You're attached to the system. Um, and I think not being banked lends you, it, it makes you appear sort of illegitimate. And I think that's what Jamal Cole, this community activist that I spoke to for my story, is sort of trying to um, articulate the feelings that these people have in the community because they don't necessarily, they're not making enough money. They don't think they're making enough money to be involved in the US financial system. And therefore they can't really save for the future and they're not seen as legitimate citizens. What about the distrust for the system? If you know, a lot of, a lot of these people who you were on the ground who you're talking to for this story, you know, yeah. are relying on currency exchanges, uh, currency exchanges and, and payday lenders uh, really to, you know, have have the money they need to get by on the on the day to day. You know, the, the payday lenders and specifically have a reputation for kind of preying on the vulnerable. Uh, how are they supposed to rebuild trust? One within this big bureaucratic system, and there's clearly a lot of discontent around that space. Uh, but, you know, just roughly with banking in these communities. Well, you know, there are a couple, couple of issues here first. And I think some of these people feel like they've been left behind because when you think about the consolidation that we've seen in the U.S. banking system and the fact that a lot of these companies, uh, these traditional banks have pulled branches and ATMs out of these communities, uh, 
you know, certainly makes it look like they don't want these people as customers and they don't care about these, these people as customers. Um, and I think too, there's also in this community, they've not had the education about what it means to be involved in the US financial system. So there's, on the one hand, they're being, they, they see traditional bankers as not wanting their business and then they're not really being educated on what they need to do or why, they, why it's important for them to be involved in the banking system. So kind of two things going on there. And, and you're right, part of it in, in, not being, in not being educated on banking, which is what some of the people in this community like Jamal Cole and the people at Seaway Self-Help are trying to do is educate these people on banking, what it means to be banked. And some of them may have been banked in the past, but didn't understand the fees. They didn't understand if you, if you don't have enough money in your account and the bank has to cover an overdraft, there's a fee involved in it. If you don't have enough money in your account, there's a fee. You think about what you get paid in the traditional banking system right now, as far as an interest rate, and it's less than 1%. So if you have $1,000 in your account over the course of a year, you're maybe go only going to make $10. So is it really worth it to them to be in the system? But again, a lot of it has to do with education. And many of these people have, have never learned about banking because their parents or their grandparents weren't involved in the banking system. Um, I mentioned in the story, there were people who got dis disengaged with banking after the depression. They pulled their money out of their accounts. They put their money in a coffee can, they hid it under their mattresses and they never went back. And so if you've been brought up in that environment, you don't have an appreciation for what saving means to you. I remember my parents, when I was a kid, got me a savings account when I was a child. I was probably a toddler. I had a savings account from as far back as I can remember. And so I knew what it meant to save money. I would get, I had a little passbook and I would see, I would get a statement every month saying how much money I had in my savings account. My parents had a small business. And so I would go to the bank with them when they made deposits. So I understood what banking meant. And a lot of these people haven't had that kind of education. So there's a lot unpacked there. In your story, you read about, you, you know, nearly 20, uh, sorry, uh, 63 million Americans uh, are lacking in financial services, don't have a bank account um, of, some of some kind. Uh, that kind of fits um, this kind of narrative of misunderstanding of and financial literacy. Uh, you know, you spoke to some activists on ground. Mm -hmm. What were they saying about, you know, fixing that financial literacy problem? That's a problem, you know, across the board, but is especially magnified in, in, in communities like the, the one you were uh, in, talk, in talking with people. Right. And I think what, they, what they're saying is a lot of it has to, they might not be able to fix the, bank, the, the banking system or maybe the commercial banking system. What they're saying, particularly Jamal Cole said, um, and Daryl Newell said too, it's, it's about educating these people. And so what they're doing is they're partnering with churches and neighborhood organizations to try to teach 
their communities about how important it is to be banking. Um, there are some opportunities out there. There are some online banks out there. Oh, there's a company called Chime that has an online, that's an online bank. Uh, but I think too, they're also looking to try to get more nonprofit organizations like Seaway Self-Help, this is a credit union, um, into their communities. A lot of it has to do with building a relationship with somebody in the banking community because once you have a savings account and once you begin saving, that can help you do other things. It can help, it, it, as I said earlier, it makes you seen as legitimate and it could help you down the road if you wanted to open a business and if you wanted to buy a home. So from their perspective, they think it's really not so much about sort of changing the way the banking industry thinks and how it perceives them, but more or less educating that audience, their audience, the people that live in these low income areas, educating them about banking and what they need to do to become engaged in the banking system. What about the impact it's having on small businesses within those communities? Uh, you know, you mentioned the relationship between uh, people in various neighborhoods and, um, you know, the financial the money managers of some kind. Uh, but, you know, those community banks, which, you know, are kind of the, the bedrock of financial trust are, are disappearing and banks which don't exactly have a, a great history of, of transparency and helping consumers um, you know, are, are, have, have limited access uh, and provide limited services in, the, in these neighborhoods, um, if at all. So what, who takes the first step here, in your view? Well, one of the, part of the problem too, with these, um, the small businesses in, you know, these low income areas, they, if they're, looking to get a loan to launch a business or they need a loan to um, improve or expand their businesses, a lot of times, you know, they're looking for $10,000, $25,000. And a lot of traditional bankers either, first of all, you have to have a relationship with the bank to begin with. And if you don't have a relationship, that makes it difficult. But second of all, a lot of the traditional banks don't want to be involved with somebody for that amount of money. So then you have to go to micro lenders. And there are some of those in these communities. Axion is a company, it's a national company, it's a nonprofit, and they make micro loans to small businesses. After the George Floyd protests in Chicago, a number of the banks got together with the state treasurer's office in Illinois and they're pledging that they're going to be more accessible and they're going to extend, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about $225 million, they're going to extend themselves to these lower income areas and try to make monies available to them. Now, whether they will or not, I think still remains to be seen, but it, you're right, that does continue to be a problem. Some of these companies these smaller businesses were shut out of the PPE loans um, during the, the COVID crisis. Um, Seaway Self-Help tried to help some of those businesses, but that continues to be an issue because they have a, dif a difficult time accessing capital because they are small. Some of them haven't in the past had a strong relationship with banks. And again, these traditional banks don't want to lend, you know, ten fifteen thousand $15,000 to a small business. 
You mentioned something interesting there about the, the PPP loans. You know, we've seen what was coming from the Trump administration, all the backlash uh, was kind of coming when these big companies or big franchises uh, were getting PPP loans when individuals, sole proprietors, small businesses were really, you know, people who are really struggling. Uh, I mean, given some of these businesses may have been struggling in their own right, but, you know, uh, a, a Ruth's Chris franchise or, you know, uh, an NBA team, they're not exactly, uh, you know, on par with the little community restaurant mm -hmm. um, in a socioeconomically disadvantaged area of the city. Uh, what do you suggest for individuals uh, to kind of, you know, protect themselves from this uh, political uncertainty, uh, one that comes from the election, and uh, also just from the, the, the virus plaguing the, the, the world itself. Are you talking about the individual consumer? Or are you talking about small businesses and how do they protect themselves? Well, I guess first individual consumers, we can talk about both, but first uh, individual consumers. Um, how do they protect themselves? You know, I think part of it too, a lot of it, it, it all has to do with engagement. Um, and I think there is a feeling within some of these communities that they've been left behind. And that's certainly the case on the south side of Chicago, where you've seen very little in the way of economic investment in these neighborhoods. And so I think the, the, the political protests that we've seen, the, pro, the quiet protests that we've seen, the organized protests that we see, and I, and I don't mean the looting because that's, very, that's been, become kind of a, um, a powder keg in this community, particularly in Chicago. But I think protesting, um, peacefully protesting has gotten that point across. But I think too, again, it's just becoming, trying to become more engaged with your community and seeking out some of these social service organizations or these, um, these nonprofits that are trying to do right by their communities. Um, organizations like um, My Block, My Hood, My City, they're trying to connect particularly younger Blacks with resources. So that's, I think, one way of going about it. Um, and I think, too, from a, from a business perspective, there's strength in numbers. And I think you're seeing a, a bit of that in on Chicago's South Side where some of these businesses are sort of banding together, sort of taking their plight to the state and to City Hall and making their situation known. There's been a real lack of investment by a lot of communities in some, in some of these disenfranchised neighborhoods. And so, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of TIF money, there have been a lot of grants, there's been a lot of um, financing that's gone out to other areas of the city that are a bit um, wealthier, but there's not been this investment in some of these communities. And so I think some of these businesses could need, probably are trying to do that now, but need to do a better job of making their voices heard. Okay, Diane, thanks so much for, uh, for sitting down, writing this piece. Uh, you can catch her piece at americaincontext.substack.com. That's all for this episode of the American Context Podcast. 
we'll see you right back here next time. Thanks.